exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If you could sum up the book of Leviticus in one word, what word would you choose? A lot of people would choose the word rule book or boring or outdated, or maybe a book about sacrifices or holiness. And of course, there are a lot of rules in this book. There are a lot of sacrifices, and there's a lot to say about holiness. But remember, all of these things contained within these books are means to an end. Everything in the book of Leviticus is just a stepping stone to that real prize. And in Leviticus, the real prize is God himself. The real prize is being able to dwell in the presence of the Lord. And that's why when we get to the end of the Bible, the prize of heaven, the glory of heaven, the greatest amenity of heaven is being able to dwell with God in his presence, just like Adam did in the garden. You see, at the center of this book about sacrifices and purity laws was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And this tent was designed to look like a new Garden of Eden. The tent was this new place where man could meet with God. But the tabernacle wasn't just a picture of the garden. It was also this picture of heaven. Which is why we read in Revelation, Behold, the temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And that's why when we began our series on Leviticus, we're coming closer and closer to the end. I told you the best word to describe this book would actually be the word heaven. And today in Leviticus 24, as we enter into that tabernacle, as we enter into the tent of meeting, we're going to get a glorious picture of heaven. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, Leviticus 24 is on page 121. And as you're turning, let me say that, that people often get thrown off by this chapter because it feels really out of place. It feels like it messes up the book of the, the flow of the book because in chapter 23, we read about all the Sabbath festivals of Israel. And then if you skip ahead to chapter 25, it's all about the Sabbath years and the years of Jubilee. But randomly, in the middle of this section about Sabbath and Sabbath celebration and Sabbath feasting and Sabbath years, chapter 24 is this weird chapter about bread and lamps, about being in the middle of the tabernacle. What's going on here? Well, in chapter 24, we get a picture of a perfect Sabbath, that this was the goal of every feast and Sabbath. The goal was to get back into the garden. The goal was to find ultimate and everlasting Sabbath rest. The goal was to get back into the light of the glory of God forever. And in Leviticus 24, we get a glorious picture of that everlasting fellowship that all of God's people will experience in heaven. But if you know your Bible, then you know that oftentimes it does not take long for the people of the Bible to mess up paradise. Because it's in this chapter, we also hear an infamous story about the stoning of a blasphemer. And, and so we're going to see the stark contrast between the gift of God's life-giving presence and also the dangerous nature of God's justice. And it's my prayer this morning that you would see God's presence both as a priceless gift and as a dangerous calling. Because in Leviticus 23, we're going to find 
Two ways God's people are called to live. Two ways God's people are called to live. First, God's people are to dwell in his presence. We'll see that in verses 1 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 23, we'll see that God's people are to honor his name above all. God's people are to dwell in his presence and honor his name above all. So let's pray and we'll dive in. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, as we seek to uncover the glorious and frightening truths of your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verses one through two. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. I mentioned earlier that the tent was designed to look like the Garden of Eden. That, that remember, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, he stationed a cherubim east of the garden to guard the entrance. And that's why the tabernacle was always meant to be set up with the entrance facing the east. And as you entered this tent on the veil, the outer veil that separated the, the courtyard from the holy place, there was a picture of two cherubim. And so you passed by these two cherubim, and as you looked up, the, the ceiling was blue like the sky, and you were surrounded by palm trees all around you because it was this picture of a garden. And, and inside this tent, imagine it, it is pitch black inside except for the little bit of light that's coming in from behind you, and there would be a golden lampstand on your left. And this lampstand was designed to look like a tree, a, a glorious tree with seven branches stemming out from the base of it. You've probably heard of this lampstand before, but often it's been called the menorah. And the reason the menorah was designed to look like a tree was once again, it was calling back the Israelites' minds to the tree of life. But now you add fire in the mix. Why fire? Why not just a golden tree? Well, because of the burning bush. But the menorah was literally this golden burning tree that represented the light of God's presence, just like when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And even though the priests were the ones who took care of the menorah, notice in verses 1 to 2, it was the job of all of the Israelites to supply the oil. Now the priests could do everything they wanted, but if the Israelites didn't step up and supply the oil, the tabernacle was without function. And I often feel the same way as a pastor. Whenever I became the pastor at this church, I discovered two great wonders. I discovered how much pastors did during the week that I had no idea about. But I also discovered how much the pastors did not do. And what I mean by that is that I discovered how much the work of the church is often done when no one is looking by people who would never get credit for it. And in Israel, without the faithful service of the Israelites, the tabernacle could not function. And so when all the people would provide the oil, it was typically olive oil, like, like it says in verses 1 to 2. And if you've ever been to a grocery store, you've even noticed that there's different kinds of oils. There, there's virgin olive oil and extra virgin olive oil. And this comes from when olives are pressed. It's kind of even like we see grapes being pressed to, to, to make wine. That olives, uh, when they're pressed the first time, this is the purest oil. This is the extra virgin olive oil, which is typically why it's darker. And then they would press it again, and that's the virgin olive oil. And then they'd press it a third time. And by the third pressing, there's usually dirt, there's stuff mixed in. And it's usually this third pressing that you'd use for lamp oil because you don't want to eat that stuff. It's got impurities in it. 
But in this passage, it's the first pressing. It's the extra virgin olive oil that you use for the lampstand. It's the purest kind of oil that you used for the menorah. Um, it's also very interesting that the word pure in Hebrew is very similar to the word spotless. So in the same way that you would bring a spotless animal to sacrifice, you'd also bring spotless oil to burn. And then verse 3 tells us this. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. It was the job of the high priest to make sure that the lamps of the lampstand were always burning because it was this continual sign of God's presence among his people. That's even if you've ever been trick-or-treating and you go around the neighborhood and you see a house with lights off, what does that signify? Nobody's home. <laughs> Might as well not even try. Uh, but if the lights are on, you know somebody's home. And, and so imagine you're an ancient Israelite. You're camping in the middle of the wilderness. There's no electricity. It is pitch black out there. And imagine you wake up in the middle of the night and, and you look at the tabernacle, at the tent of meeting, and you just see a little bit of light flickering behind the veil. And so it was, it was meant to be this continual sign of the Lord is home among his people. Is that no matter what time of day, no matter what was going on, God was present among his people. He was with you, Israelite. And that's why it was the sacred sign of the priest. It was their job every evening and morning to arrange the light of the menorah to ensure that the people knew that God was in their midst. Once the Israelites would arrive in the promised land and once the temple would be built in Jerusalem, the menorah would even take on greater significance because every year during the Feast of Booths, the priests would parade a larger ceremonial menorah through the streets, lit on fire, and, and, and this parade would end at the Temple Mount. And it was supposed to be this reminder of when God led the Israelites through the wilderness as a pillar of fire, or some may even say as the light of the world. And so, of course, Jesus, when he attended the Feast of Booths, that's why he stood up and said, I am the light of the world. That he was declaring that he was the God of the Old Testament. He was saying he is the source of all light and life. This, this festival you're celebrating is actually about me. That was Jesus' point in his day. And let me say this. If you're ever brave enough to sit down and read the book of Leviticus on your own, I, I know it's probably going to feel as exciting as reading the manual for your VCR. Uh, because too often we see this book as some ancient priestly tech manual that was just meant to teach the priests how to do their jobs. But remember... This book is closer to a play than a priestly tech manual. Even in this simple lampstand, even in the menorah, there's a story being told here, multiple stories actually. The story of the light of creation, the story of the tree of light, the story of the burning bush, the story of the pillar of fire, and eventually pointing forward to the story of Jesus. But that's not the only story being told here. Look with me to verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. We'll stop there. If you walked into the tent of meeting, menorah was on the left, but on the right was a table plated with pure gold. And the table 
was called the table of the bread of presence. Its only job was to just hold the bread. And think about how glorious that, that, would have, that would have been. That pitch black room, there's some light behind you, but the light from the menorah is shining and reflecting in glorious rays off this golden table. That the light is, is being displayed over this bread. And eventually when we get to the temple, the entire room is plated in gold. So you can just imagine going in there with, with the lampstand and seeing light shooting all around you in pure gold. It would have been glorious. And you can imagine the sweet smell of both the bread and the incense that would have filled the tent. And all of this comes back to the blessing of Aaron. That Aaron, as the high priest of Israel, he would often get up in front of all the people and raise his hands and pronounce a word of blessing upon the people. And in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord told Aaron to bless the people by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. And if you grew up in a more liturgical background, you probably heard that blessing over and over again because it's been common for Christians to end services by saying the number six blessing over the people that God, may he still shine the light of his face on you. And so we look at these 12 loaves of bread. They're obviously a symbol for the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of this was a glorious picture of Israel basking in the light of God's face. And that's why this bread would simply come to be known as the bread of the presence. And then verse 8 tells us this. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. Every seven days, the bread would be replaced. So it was as if every day Israel experiences a renewal, or in other words, a new creation. Or I should say every Sabbath day, there would be like a new creation. It was as if every seven days, as the bread was made new, the Israelites were also made new so they can continue to dwell in the light of the glory of God. This was a regular, perpetual reminder that God had made a special covenant with Israel, that out of all the nations of the world, God chose to dwell among them. And so every week, the priests were to then eat the old bread. They were to eat the holy bread of the presence of God. And even though only the priests could enter this tent, this ceremony was pointing forward to a greater reality, to a day when all of the Israelites, when all of God's people could dwell in the light of his presence forever. And that's why it's so incredible when we get to the end of Revelation 22. If you read Revelation 22, 5, literally, we are told, and night will be no more. There will be no light or menorah or sun for the light, for the Lord God will be their light because he will be with them and he will be their God. And now, you know, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. We don't have the bread of presence, but we do have a symbol that powerfully points forward in the same way that they had. We, as Christians, when we eat communion, we're eating the New Testament version of the bread of presence. That communion was meant to be this holy meal that only was to be eaten, eaten by the New Testament priests. And in the New Testament, everyone who believes in Jesus is made a part of this kingdom of priests. 
And that's why even when we practice the Lord's Supper here, we make sure, we forbid, you must be a believer to partake in this meal. Because just like in the Old Covenant, only the priest could partake in this bread. This was a holy meal that was meant to be a reminder of God's abiding presence. And so when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded of Christ's presence with his church. Not physically, literally, that the bread transforms or anything like that. But we believe Christ is present spiritually among his people in the beautiful ceremony of communion. I think that's even why in, in the New Testament, uh, in the early church, I should say, very, very early church, the first church, they ate communion every single Sunday because they considered it a privilege to be considered a priest of this new covenant. That in the New Testament, followers of Jesus ate the bread and drank the cup, not Saturday to celebrate creation, but Christians ate the bread of communion on the Christian Sabbath every Sunday to celebrate Christ's resurrection. And, and you know, I'll just get on a hobby horse real quick. I, I've heard so many times, you cannot do communion every week, otherwise it will lose its meaning. But it didn't seem that way for the early church. And also, has anyone ever said that about prayer or preaching or singing? Can you imagine a church that only sang once a month? Can you imagine a church that only prayed once a month or only preached once a month or only read the scripture once a month? So why do we do this with communion? I, I know, I know, I know the Bible does not tell us exactly how often we need to do the Lord's Supper. But it feels like we're just doing this once a month because we don't want to be like the Catholics, which is not a good reason to do something or to not do something. And, and let me tell you this. Back whenever I was in seminary, I was actually raised going to Catholic school, very familiar with that. I was always told it's going to become meaningless if you do it every week. Um, and, and, and whenever I went to seminary, I signed up for a church internship where I was assigned to a random church. And I was assigned to this church that did communion every Sunday. And I, I was really bothered by that. I did, I did not like it. I, it felt too Catholic. I, I did not like it. I thought communion was going to lose its meaning. But actually, as time went on, it only became more meaningful. It was a weekly physical reminder of Christ's sacrifice that you could taste and touch. And it became much more beautiful to me because communion is this constant reminder that Christ died for his church. It's this constant reminder that when we gather as the Lord's people, we are the New Testament tabernacle and he is present among us. And it's also this reminder, it's this picture. Every time we eat communion, it's this picture that one day we will eat this bread and drink this cup with the Lord in his kingdom. And so I'm just asking, why wouldn't we do that every single Sunday? We don't have to. And look, I'm, I'm not the CEO of this church. I'm not the Pope of this church. I don't get to make the decisions. We're not going to change anything next week. You don't, should not expect to have communion next week or the week after that. Um, the church as a whole needs to be convinced of something. If you don't agree with me and you got your biblical arguments, that's fine. I'm just saying this is my argument. This is where I'm coming from. I think we, it'd be better if we did communion more. Anyway, back to Leviticus 24. Verse 9 would be a great place to end the chapter. That's the Disney fairy book fairy tale ending is, hey, we are basking in the glory of the Lord. That's how Revelation ends. Wow, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is paradise. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, it does not take long to go from paradise to paradise loss. Because not only are God's people to dwell in his presence, but they're also to honor his name above all. Look with me to verse 10. Now an Israelite's woman's son 
whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And stop there. Right after we get this picture of a perfect Sabbath. This perfect that picture of rest and living peacefully in the presence of God. We have a problem in the camp of Israel. Someone has treated the name of the Lord God, the name of the covenant God of Israel, who gave them life, who freed them from slavery, who's raining down literal bread from heaven every single day to provide for them. They've treated the name of the Lord as if it's nothing, and they've cursed. What exactly does that mean? Of course, in its most basic meaning, to use God's name carelessly is blasphemy. So I would advise you, do not use God's name or Jesus' name as a cuss word as you would a filthy four-letter word. But I don't think in this case it was simply that this man carelessly said, oh my G-O-D. So for instance, in 1 Samuel, there is a man who is cursing King David and he's throwing rocks at David and he's insulting David. He's saying, you're a worthless dog. He was essentially saying to David, uh, I want you dead. I want you to die and your name is worthless. That, that was a deliberate and premeditated picture of what it means to curse someone's name. And I think that's what's going on in Leviticus 24. This is not a careless word. This is intentionally cursing the name of the Lord. And so someone is just blaspheming the name of God. And the Israelites, they're like, we don't know what to do. There's no law about this. We know blasphemy is bad, but there's no rule on the books yet on what to do with someone who commits blasphemy. Plus this guy's half Egyptian, which also poses another problem. If he's half Egyptian, do we treat him like a full-blown Israelite or do we treat him like a foreigner? If we treat him like a foreigner, maybe he gets less of a punishment. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. And it's interesting that Moses tells us the name of his mother and the name of his grandfather and the name of his tribe because all of these, mean, these names in verse 11 have deep meaning that would have been very clear to someone who read Hebrew or spoke Hebrew. So, so for instance, Shelomith means payback. Uh, Dibri means my word, and Dan means judgment, literally. And so literally in verse 11, his mother's name was Payback, the daughter of my word from the tribe of judgment. And so let me say, nothing in the Bible is here by accident. Moses did not choose to tell us these names, just, oh, by the way, this is the guy who, who he was. This is his first and last name. Nothing in scripture is recorded just because... So to a Hebrew hearing this story, even these names listed here, they're meant to invoke all these questions. Oh, what is going to be the payback for this crime? What does the word say about this? What is going to be God's judgment? And then the Lord renders his judgment in verse 13. It says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who was cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, immigrant, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And stop there. This man in Leviticus 24, he gets the same punishment, the same condemnation, the same judgment as Nadab and Abihu did when they entered the tent 
and offered up strange fire. They received the judgment of death. And notice in verse 14, they're treating him just like the scapegoat from the Day of Atonement. That you have this goat that you bring outside of the camp. The people would lay their hands on the goat and they would confess their sins and they'd send the goat into the wilderness, presumably to die. Um, and, and so in this scenario, everyone who even heard the blasphemy, it's not as if they did something wrong, but even by hearing the name of the Lord blaspheme, they become ritually impure simply by witnessing it. And then they stone him. Uh, this man is being presented like a sacrifice. It's a strange, strange situation. It's shocking. It makes me uncomfortable. Because I'm sure most of us, when we read the story, we don't, oh, butterflies in your stomach. I'm going to put this verse on a coffee mug. That is not a reaction. You probably feel uneasy. And I think this is, this is a story that is given to us because it's supposed to make you ask, is this really a fair punishment? Is God really just to enact death to someone who just blasphemes his name? And so we look to verse 17. The Lord actually answers this question in an interesting way. Lord says in verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Stop there. Capital punishment, I realize even in New York State, has been outlawed since 2004. So to many of you, this probably even sounds harsh and outdated, even the idea of someone being executed for murder. Uh, but remember, these laws were given at a time to ensure that the punishment would fit the crime. That it was far too common that day is that you poke out my eye, I kill you. You kill my sheep, I kill your whole family. That there was this unequal retribution that was common throughout the ancient world. And these laws were given to make sure that only the guilty party was punished for their sins, for their crimes, and that they weren't overly punished. There wasn't unequal justice given. And a life for life, I think most of us can get on board. That makes sense. You kill someone, you forfeit the right to your own life. An animal for an animal makes sense. You kill someone's animal, you got to make it right. You got to get them a new animal, or you got to pay them back. Um, so, no matter what, the punishment fits the crime. Basic logic of these verses. And if you're not paying attention to the story, you may just think that, that verse 17 starts a whole new section of this book. You may think that verses 17 through 22 have nothing to do with the case of blasphemy, but then we come to 23 and we find that the story is not over. And in verse 23, it says So Moses spoke to the people of Israel. And they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so, so here's the point. Here's what I think verses 17 through 23 are saying. In the same way that the punishment must fit the crime, so this man who was stoned for blasphemy, he received a just punishment. In this story, we're told that blaspheming the name of the Lord deserves the same punishment as murder. And, I, and we're shocked by that. We're scandalized by that. Because if murdering someone deserves capital, how much more valuable is the Lord's name? But I think we're scandalized by this story primarily because we tend to think so little of God's name. We tend to think that something can only be wrong is if it hurts another person. But that's not what defines sin. Like, men, imagine if you were hanging out with a bunch of other men 
and suddenly one of them just decides to start dragging your wife's name through the mud. Like he just starts cursing her name and insulting her left and right. Or imagine wife, someone did that to your husband's name. Or imagine if someone said something about your parents or your kids or your grandkids, how would you feel? Or maybe even how would you feel if someone just started trashing your country or burned your country's flag or was deliberately disrespectful? How would you feel? And so why is it when someone disrespects our family or our country, we are rightly offended and outraged, but when someone takes the name of the Lord in vain, it oftentimes does not affect us at all. And it's because we think far too highly of ourselves and our family and because we think far too little of our God who created us and gave us life. And still, there's the death penalty. I, we get that it's wrong. I get that blasphemy is wrong. Don't insult God, he made you. But the death penalty, that seems harsh. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow. But let me share what I read this week by a scholar named Alan Mosley in his commentary on Leviticus. He writes this. Some people are surprised by the severity of God's judgment of the man who blasphemed. On the contrary, I am surprised by the extent of God's mercy. We are surrounded by blasphemers at work, at school, and in the media. We regularly hear people scoff at the truth of God's word, mock God's people, and publicly deny God's existence. Yet God allows them to live another day and another and another. He mercifully gives them many opportunities to turn to him in faith. And the Apostle Paul referred to such mercy as God's extraordinary patience. Peter wrote that God shows such patience because he does not want anyone to perish in his judgment. Instead, God wants all to come to repentance. And so the question that we can ask of this story that's not even in here, how many opportunities did the Lord give this man described in Leviticus 24? End quote. You see... In the final analysis, we do not want justice because justice means that we deserve what this blasphemer got. We all deserve death for our sin. What we really want is not justice. What we really want is mercy. But listen to me. This is the good news. That Jesus, who never had an ounce of blasphemy in his heart, he was absolutely perfect. But when he was arrested, when he was beaten, when he was put on trial, he was condemned for the sin of blasphemy. That the Pharisees used this passage to condemn the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of glory. Because Jesus would not stop making himself out to be equal with God. And that would have been blasphemy if it weren't true. But it was true. And so Jesus, condemned as a blasphemer, went as the pure, spotless sacrifice, as the substitute for all the blasphemers in the world, that Jesus was sentenced to death and he died for the sin of blasphemy and not for his own sin, but for our sin, that he suffered for every careless word we have ever uttered, every bitter thought, every evil deed. And on the cross, the punishment fit the crime. That's where we were even talking in our Sunday school, in the class on theology. Someone asked the question, why was the cross so severe? Like, like, could not Jesus have been hung? Could he not have been shot? Could not, I mean, is there any death that's less excruciating than the cross? 
But the reason the cross was so excruciating, so humiliating, is because the punishment must fit the crime because our God is a God of justice. And so Jesus got exactly what we deserved. And on the cross, the punishment fit the crime. But three days later, three days later, Christ rose again as the Lord of life. And then he ascended to heaven where he now rules and reigns. And so that anyone who turns from their blasphemy, turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus will receive the pardon of the king. The one mediator between God and man is seated on his throne at the right hand of the father and ready to make a way for you to enter into the throne room of God by his own blood through a new and better covenant. And for all who put their faith alone in Jesus, he was your substitute on the cross. For all who have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus, the promise of eternal rest and everlasting life and the, pre- and the presence of God is yours. My prayer this morning was that you would see God's presence as both a priceless gift and a dangerous calling because in Leviticus 24, we found two ways God's people are called to live by dwelling in his presence and by honoring his name above all. Let me say, as Christians, we have access to the presence of God in a way the Israelites could not even fathom. Through Jesus, we can draw near to our heavenly father in prayer so that we can live every part of our lives in his presence. So let me ask you today, how was your fellowship with God just this last week? Are you walking with the Lord every day? Do you pray to him every hour? Is your heart near to him? Does your spirit sing when you read his word? Do you enjoy your time in prayer? And do you delight when you gather with God's people? Do you feel his presence even in the simple ceremony of communion? Let me say all of these earthly disciplines, all of these things that are meant to orient our hearts to the Lord, to enjoy his presence here on earth, they're meant to prepare us for what is to come. Sweet and unending fellowship with God forever. And so this morning, I have four pastoral charges. I have four ways that we can apply the truths of this passage and live in the presence of the Lord. First pastoral charge. Believe in the one who dwelt among us. Believe in the one who dwelt among us. If you're like me, you probably carelessly used the Lord's name in vain more times than you can count. Maybe you're not like me and maybe you've sinned in very different ways. But whatever your sin is, the good news is that Jesus came here as the light of the world. So that whoever followed him would have the light of life. Jesus came here as the true bread from heaven so that anyone who eat of his flesh would never die. Jesus came here as God incarnate, God dwelling amongst us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And it's only through Jesus that anyone can bask in the light of the glory of God forever because Christ has purchased salvation for all who would believe. So today, if you will humble yourself and cry out to God to forgive you, and through the sacrifice of Jesus, he will forgive you and save you. Second pastoral charge. Seek to serve him faithfully. Seek to serve him faithfully. Without the faithful service of the Israelites, the tabernacle could not function. And I'll say it today, without the faithful service of Christians, the church cannot function. Pastors are not the only ones called to serve. 
In fact, it's not even a select group of deacons or the treasurer or the elected officials of the church. It's every member of the body of Christ who must step up and serve faithfully to make sure that Christ's mission on earth will continue. Preachers are simply one part of the body of Christ, namely the mouth. But to make a whole body, we need hands and feet and ears and eyes. And every member of Christ's church has been given a gift by God in order to serve and build up the church. And so just like in ancient Israel, God still commands that all people serve in God's mission, regardless of of how you are called to serve. All of God's people must serve. Third pastoral charge, honor the Lord's name. Honor the Lord's name. We've already seen that throughout Leviticus, honoring the Lord's name means more than simply not using his name carelessly, but honoring the Lord's name is not less than that. That when you read the Ten Commandments, this is the only commandment that's given a dire warning. He will not allow those who blaspheme his name to be, to, uh, to be not forgiven. That even in the New Testament, we're told that we're going to have to have an account before God where we're going to have to give an account for every careless word ever uttered. So treat them the Lord's name as holy. And final pastoral charge, seek the Lord's presence above all. Seek the Lord's presence above all. I think too often when we talk about heaven, when we think about heaven, our focus is on the fact that there will be no more tears. Our focus is on the fact that there will be no more sorrow or no more death. And especially one aspect of heaven that people cling to desperately is that we will be reunited with those we've loved who have also put their faith alone in Jesus. And listen to me, church. These are good things. These are things I look forward to. They're going to be glorious things. I can't wait to get that new body. I can't wait to see those that I have lost in Christ, in the Lord. But all of those things pale in comparison to being with God. That if we get all of the blessings of heaven, but have not God, then we have nothing. But if we don't get a single one of those blessings, but have God, then we have everything. In the words of St. Augustine, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. In heaven, the presence of the Lord is the place where we can find the one who can satisfy our souls and give us the rest our hearts long for. So seek his presence above all. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for passages like this that are good and challenging and difficult. Humble us to be able to accept the hard truths of your scripture and allow us to see our own sin, allow us to see our need for the Savior. And in all things, we thank you for the blessings we have in Christ. Give us hope. Anchor everything that we are in that promised land to come so that we may endure through every trial here on earth. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Horkin Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. 
With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.